This is exactly right. To My Favorite Murder. That's Georgia Hardstark. That's Karen Kilgariff. And I'm Kate Winkler Dawson. And this is Tenfold More Wicked. The Woo! Cliffhanger. <laughs> We're back. We're back, baby. Yes. That story was wild and exciting. And there's more. When we last left off <laughs> at 10 Rillington Place. Mm. <laughs> Bodies were piling up. That's right. Thigh bones were being leaned against fences. Can I change my mind and say that I think the husband didn't do it? Nope. It's too late. <laughs> no. <laughs> you picked your horse. Now you've got to ride it to the finish line. I'm sorry, Georgia. I don't like, I don't ride horses and I don't want to. And it's the tough love of horseback riding vis a vis podcasting. This is just how it is. No, I want to get bucked off and change my mind. <laughs> well, there's more info to come. So don't. Okay. Okay. Don't wishy-wash flip-flop just yet. Ooh. There's still more time. Okay. I do want to have a disclaimer in that I have picked up some sort of plague <laughs> within the last Great. two days. Not a COVID okay. plague, but a plague that has wreaked havoc on my nose and my throat. So if I have a little uh, gulp or if I feel too you nasally. Sound great. Yeah, I think you sound good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not and that. the and we can the magic of editing. We can, we've got Andrew, Ethan, Uh oh, she she actually to prove her own point is now going into fits of coughing to be like, how dare you? No, you sound great. You sound we love amazing. that cough. That's great yeah. for podcasting, and it actually kind of fits the story because it's we're in the middle of this. That's crazy right. Fog. This was the sound that was plaguing yes. London in 1952. Don't make me laugh. Can we get some coarse clopping noises on cobblestone? This is the 50s. Not helping. Nobody's helping in this situation. Oh, right. There's cars. Shut up. There's cars. <laughs> Everyone knows there's cars. Shut, shut up. You're going to make me gag now. <laughs> I have that effect on people. Why don't y'all catch up? Let me mute myself and then I'll come I mean, back. We've got nothing to talk about. <laughs> this is all about you. You need some lem- hot lemon honey yeah. water or something. Is that what that is? Oh, it's a She knows. You know what it's missing? A little splash of whiskey. Baby. Yeah, just to calm it all down. I usually don't get bad allergies. I don't know what happened, but I don't know. So much energy coming from you guys. <laughs> I think I just took something on. Is it bad juju or something? <laughs> Did somebody do something wrong and you put it on me? Maybe seeing my cat right here is like suddenly allergy attack. Well, I think making this a two-parter sprung us into something. Yes. Some other. Yeah, we agreed to something we could have never known. That we, George and I, entirely benefit from because that means that's one show we don't have to do. That's right. The homework for ourselves. So we were like, yeah, love it. Yep. I hate homework too. Oof. Okay, I think I'm ready. All right. So let's go over what we already know about what happened at 10 Rillington Place in the late 1840s, early 1950s. So Timothy Evans and his wife, Burl Evans, move in. She's pregnant. She has a little girl named Geraldine. And Geraldine and Burl go missing about a year after they move in. Timothy Evans has a drinking problem. He's kind of a violent husband, a lot of domestic violence, a lot of fighting between the two of them. And yet he seems to be a really good father. He confesses to murdering them and hiding their bodies. So when Timothy Evans returns to Wales, where he's from, he goes to the police and he confesses 
He shows up and he says, I've killed my wife and my child in London. The police phone Notting Hill, which is where they lived in London at the time. And the Notting Hill police go down and search. And finally, after a few days, they find Burl and the little girl Geraldine, and they're wrapped up sort of mummy style in an outdoor wash house that has not been used for quite a while. So there's a wash house and a laboratory. And the wash house is really where people do laundry. And it's been sort of shut down by one of the tenants, John Christie, who has said, you know, there's some problems with it and the water doesn't work. And so he's discouraged people from using this wash house. So Timothy Evans confesses and then he recants and he says that his neighbor, John Christie, is the one who did it and who's killed these two people. So John Christie says he was a wife beater. He was a terrible person. Timothy Evans goes on trial. He's convicted much of it based on eyewitness testimony just in general and character witnesses, but also primarily on John Christie and his wife. They babysat for Geraldine. They liked Burl. Burl seemed like she was a nice woman. Timothy was not a nice man. And so, you know, we think this is what happened. He is hanged and the story is forgotten. We do know going backward that John Christie, who people call Reg, John Christie would go and he picked up a couple of different women in the early 1940s when he was a war reserve police officer. He picked up two women separately and killed them and put them in the backyard. So he buried them in the backyards and he planted things over them and worked in the backyard all the time. Mm. So he was obviously wanting to keep people close, whomever he was, you know, killing. So there is a large gap between... 1944, which is when he killed his last victim, and Burl. There's about five years, four years. And when Burl goes missing, John Christie doesn't seem to do anything. He's visiting sex workers. He's opened up a little photography shop that is mostly sex work, it sounds like. He's hiring women who are part-time sex workers, but also women who just need money to do sexy photos with him. So he's a creep, but he doesn't appear to be killing. If we believe the MO that, you know, he is someone who kills people, a certain type of of woman, and puts them around him, the backyard or wherever. So in 1952, he gets tired of it all. I think he just gets tired in general. He was 54. And he quits his job in December, and then he strangles his wife, Ethel, who was continually getting on his nerves. He pulls up the floorboards in the parlor. He puts her under the floorboards, He gets several keepsakes, and it seems like he is ready to transition into something in his life. Mm -hmm. So I told you the story of the police officer who was invited inside and this horrible smell that was happening in the parlor, and he found out later on that it was because he was standing above Ethel Christie's body. Mm -hmm. So this is all, of course, really terrible. We're in December of 1952. Let's pretend that we're not even thinking about Burl and Geraldine being two of his victims. So you've got two women in the garden and you've got his wife under the floorboards in the parlor. Then you've got a woman coming up in January whose name was Kathleen Maloney. And she was a sex worker, full-time sex worker from Ladbroke Grove area, which is, you know, close by Notting Hill. And she was a woman who drank an awful lot. And she was someone who was very popular, not popular as a, as in a sex worker would be popular with clients. Mm-hmm. She just was a friendly person. She was a really nice person. And, you know, she met John Christie one night. And again, in the grand scheme of post-war London, where 
you have a lot of really angry men who have just served in World War II in their home. Mm-hmm. And John Christie is not such a bad person as, as someone who's soliciting you for sex work. So he gets her pretty drunk. He gets her home to 10 Rillington Place. Of course, now Ethel is, is dead. So he is totally unrestrained as far as who he brings home and when. We have a lot of different people living in the building at this point. A lot of people coming and going. So no one is noticing people coming in and out of this building because it's just happening all the time. So he employs the way of killing that he did previously, which was now about 10 years old. So he's got the menthol concoction that he has in a jar, and he's got one piece of rubber that leads to a mouthpiece for the woman to breathe in, and another piece of rubber that leads to the gas tap at the back of his stove. And he has a bull clip now. So this is where he really starts to employ the bull clip, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's fast for him. He turns on the gas. It's already been on. He can release the bull clip, and it's just very quick. Kathleen Maloney is knocked out. He sexually assaults her, and then he strangles her. So this is a method that he's sort of perfected. Again, John Christie is a physically weak person. Mm -hmm. So Kathleen Maloney is dead. He has no room in the parlor because his wife is there. He doesn't have room in the garden any longer because there's two women there. So he does something that is really interesting and really gross as far as I'm concerned. He goes to the kitchen and he removes part of the kitchen alcove that's sort of where a coal storage unit used to be. And he removed it and he placed her body inside of it. And then he put a false wall in and wallpapered Uh over it. So he has a body now in the open. And Lynn Trevelyan, the police officer, had smelled his wife, you know, who was in the Mm -hmm. floorboards, which is, the wood was pretty thick. So I'm not sure what he was thinking. He started using a lot of lye, according to his neighbors, inside and outside and all around to, to hopefully cover up the smell. Also, this is happening in January in London, which is very cold and very dry. Mm. There's not a lot of precipitation. So she sort of mummifies all of the people around them, you know, that he's buried around him have mummified. So you go a a few weeks later and he meets a woman named Rita Nelson, who was from Belfast. And she was also visiting her sister and she meets Christy. She is six months pregnant at the time. And she has a family back in Belfast who are looking out for her. So very similar situation as Kathleen Maloney. He meets her at a pub. He gets her really, really drunk because he has the money. Now, he's also running out of money. He has sold Ethel's jewelry. He kept her wedding ring, but then he later sold it. He sold her clothes. He actually offers Kathleen Maloney some clothes. That's one of the ways he got her back to the flat was saying, Mm. I've got all these great clothes and it was his wife's clothes. He's selling furniture. He's really scraping the bottom of the barrel because he has no money because he's quit his job. And it's two months later. So he meets Rita Nelson. She comes back. The same thing happens. She breathes in this, these fumes, these carbon monoxide fumes, and she dies. Now, one key forensic thing When you breathe in carbon monoxide, you are poisoned and it gives you this sort of pinkish hue, Hmm. which stays for a very, very long time, which is why they've been able to exhume bodies and many times still see that you could see that there's evidence of carbon monoxide poisoning. That actually becomes key later on. So Rita Nelson dies. He puts her in the same alcove. He takes down the wall, takes down the wallpaper, puts another two women back in this alcove and he wallpapers them back in. Nobody's suspicious. Now, 
Ethel's family, remember when I told you she goes to visit her family a lot? Ethel's family is curious about how come she hasn't come to visit because I think she went in early, early December right before she was killed, right before the fog started. And they hadn't seen her since. And it was unusual to not see her around the holidays. So he had bought some postcards and he had written in his hand, this was smart, he had written in his hand and he said, Ethel's arthritis is so bad Mm -hmm. that she asked me to write this postcard for you. And they didn't think anything of it. Her family was never suspicious until all of this starts to come out because he was good at covering things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but now he's like tying himself directly to it by name, right. right? Which is really bad. It's totally reminding me of the H.H. H. Holmes yeah. story in Chicago. But yeah. Also just the, the idea that you could put someone behind a wall, but it's in your kitchen. Yeah. He's keeping them so close. Yeah. Extra creepy. What do you think that means? And y'all's experience hearing, I mean, more stories than I've probably ever heard. Is that <laughs> some sort of sadistic, weird thing for him? Or is it a practical thing? I think practical. Like you're in a, a crowded city and I'm sure there's police patrolling the streets at night, especially if you're in a bad neighborhood like that. I don't think it'd be easy to, to, to secret a body out of there. I, to, I totally agree. And then also I think there's that like it's ownership and control. Right. It's essentially, it's totally more convenient, but it's also like, it's the ultimate trophy to keep. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, I did this, that creepy, creepy serial killer thing. Yeah. But just behind the, the wall is yeah. horrifying. Yeah, It is in thin walls and you can smell it. And maybe this was something he enjoyed. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty gruesome. Yeah. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant-quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that 
fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com slash murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. So the last person is a woman named Hectorina McClellan and she went by Enan. So she was living in London with her boyfriend and he met both of them at this cafe and befriended both of these people. Mm. And he invited them both back because he was saying that he was going to have a room to rent. And so they both went back and they checked out the room. And he actually said they could spend the night. And he said he preferred that they slept separately because they weren't married. And so Alex Baker agreed. Ina did too, I guess. Mm -hmm. And this was, I think, the first time he was really trying to draw someone in who was not someone who was not easily drawn back to his house. So he asked Ina to come back and to have a discussion with him without Alex about the price of the rent. She comes in, he offers her a drink, she has some drinks. Finally, she becomes inebriated and she dies and he sexually assaults her. And now there's three people in the alcove. Mm -hmm. So to recap, two in the garden, one in the parlor, and then three in the alcove. So, you know, now we're up to six. And he's running out of room and I think he realizes he's running out of room. Now... Again, Ina has someone who cares a lot for her and Alex comes back and starts harassing John Christie and says, where's my wife or where's my girlfriend? I don't understand what's happening. And he said, maybe she ran off and he was really trying to put him off. But I think that John Christie was really becoming aware that things were going to be falling apart. He was running out of money. He was running out of space. People could be suspicious. And he was getting a little sloppy about who he was picking. Also, he has all these bodies buried in his house. And then now he's inviting people to the house. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't really understand that. And maybe you guys have some input too. I don't I don't understand inviting a police officer to come in. Right. And he was very brazen about it. And he had a quick response. He was a smart guy. Everybody knew he liked to take things apart like watches and put them back together. He was very bright. He sounds cocky. And he sounds like he's getting cockier because... Taking in a sex worker, you know, who no one in her life can connect that specific guy to her is one thing. And it's like, you know, why why sex workers get preyed on is because of the anonymity. But then you're ringing home a couple. The boyfriend could just go to the cops and be like, well, we spent the night at this creep's house and now he's being right. shady. Or He can be ID. Yeah. Right. Or like, yeah, this guy sent us postcards supposedly in our missing daughter's name. He's getting cocky or he wants to get caught. Or it's just the classic psychopath thing. They yeah. think they're the smartest person in the room always. Right. They think they're like, he has gotten away with it. So he's right to think it in a way. But at mm -hmm. the same time, they're always about pushing the boundaries. You're standing here in it in basically a morgue and I'm the only one that knows it and I'm the one responsible for it. Like he's this creepy little god in his world. Yeah. He needs people to be there to up that feeling. Like once you right. do it once, then it needs to be that plus, right? Yeah. Every time. I think you're both right. And as the story goes on, you'll see a lot more evidence of all of that stuff. So in 1953, he is officially out of room. It's March 
And he decides it's time to go. He has had enough of all this. He needs a different life. It's unclear what his plan was, but his plan was to leave. And so, again, I need to comment about this. He sublets out his apartment. No. No. He does. He brings a couple back. And he gets, I think it's about seven pounds, which is a great price back in Notting Hill in the 50s. He has the couple look around and they make an agreement. And he says, you need to be careful because I'm doing this illegally. And they say, fine. And he takes a few things and puts them in a suitcase and he bounces. (gasps) He doesn't give a fuck at this point. He leaves them in this cemetery, basically, of an apartment. Well, it's like short-term gain. He wanted a little bit of money for, I mean, obviously... This is going to not end well. I don't understand this. He's He is one of the more confusing killers I have ever, ever read about, for sure. I think you're right, Karen. Either he is really getting off on the idea that he's this all-powerful person or he's just a megalomaniac and doesn't think he'll ever get caught or, bo- you know, all of it. Yeah, all of it. So much time has passed that this guy's actually perfecting. I mean, like, he has gone on caught to the point where he is able to perfect his MO. So mm-hmm. some of these things seem highly risky and stupid, but he's getting away with it. Right. So it's not stupid, actually. Not for much longer, though, luckily. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, so he leaves. This couple moves in. The landlord spots a couple pretty immediately and boots them out after 24 <laughs> hours. So his secret is actually safe for a little while. Wow. Now... He checks in to what I would call as a senior citizen hostel, like pensioners living in London, and he uses his real name. (laughs) So he signs up under his real name and he gets a room and he stays in London. So he could have left, but he stays in London. He goes to cafes. He hangs out. So... The, there is a tenant who in his building who is interested in cooking in his flat while the flat is being kind of primed eventually to, to be rented out. And the tenant tells the landlord, can I install a radio down there to be able to listen to the radio? And he says, sure. So he goes down there and he starts pounding into that wall and it starts cracking and he pulls it down because it's basically sheetrock. It's like a thin sheetrock. He pulls it down and he has it that in the UK, they call them torches. So he had a torch, which is a flashlight and he stuck it into the hole and he saw three backs uh, of bodies. Uh, women women are just wearing bras. And he said it was just the most terrifying thing he had ever uh, seen. So oh my God, the horror. It's a horror movie. It's a horror movie. It is. And this is where it all falls apart for John Christie, but not for a really long time. <laughs> no and, way. and this is where in my book, the intersection between the fog and John Christie come together because, you know, the fog is this, systemic issue of air pollution. And we know another fog's coming that's killed 12,000 people. Mm. And yet, as soon as the press hears about John Reginald Christie, no one has ever cared about the fog. (laughs) No one cares that thousands of more people are going to die next year because it happens every year. Instead, there is this clear and present danger of this John Christie, who is a serial killer and who's on the run. And so when I'm looking through the archive of newspapers, you could see every day, three people found an alcove. And the next day, wife found under floorboards. And then, of course, they started calling it the House of Horrors. And then they start digging in the garden and all this stuff comes up. So I had yesterday promised you there was a story about the police officer who unfortunately has a lot of encounters with John Christie. The first is, you know, he's standing over his wife in the parlor. The second is when John Christie finally gets caught, because he does, thankfully, 
But this other instance, before Christie is caught, Lynn Trevelyan, as a, as a young officer, is sent over to 10 Rollington Place, which again has been dubbed House of Horrors. He walks into the backyard and he has a lot of younger officers than he. He's supposed to supervise and they're excavating. Right? This would probably not be done now. They would have a whole expert team coming in, but you've got all these young officers with shovels trying to dig through the trash mm-hmm. that has been in this backyard because it's actually even worse now than it was when Burl and Geraldine were in the walk house Mm -hmm. three years earlier because there's more tenants, there's more junk. So he's digging and he's digging and and he's watching finally this dirt fly and he sees this copper tin and it's a tobacco tin and I looked up, you know, what kind of tobacco it was and everything. So he's telling me this story. And again, this man is in his 100s. He's 102. <laughs> wow. So he says, so I said, what was it? And he said, I could just see it glinting. He really knew how to tell a story of this guy. So he's like, I could see it glinting. And I walked over and I picked it up and it's a, t- a small tobacco tin. And he said, I opened it up and there were more pubic hairs inside than you could ever <gasps> no, imagine. What? what? I yeah. was going with teeth. That is way no. I would probably worse. have rather had teeth yeah. in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> I would absolutely have preferred teeth fuck? 100%. And the problem was was that they weren't not you know they weren't particularly motivated to figure out whose hairs were whose yeah. but we don't know if this was a request from him and right. none of these were people who had died. It probably was Ethel's for sure, his wife, mm-hmm. and he had buried it. What the question was, was whether or not there were, were there more bodies right. based on the pubic hairs? And there was just no way to tell. But it was a it was an interesting story because it really did show he was pretty stunned by that as a young officer. So Yes. At this point, are they putting together that a couple of years ago, we found the body of a woman yeah, oh, yeah. child? Okay, so at this point, they're like, uh-oh. Yeah, and then they start, it, it's a real oh shit moment yeah. for the Metropolitan Police as well as the Crown Prosecutor. That someone else has hanged for this crime. Yep, three years earlier. Let me tell you what ends up happening with him. He doesn't leave. He could have left. So if we thought the Gabby Petito and Lacey Peterson case brought a lot of tips and clues from the public, this is 20th century type of clues. Yeah. They were sending in snail mail by the hundreds and then thousands of clues to where John Christie was because now you have the serial killer who's on the run for one week uh, and then two weeks in London. People are spotting him all oh, over the place. Shit. Someone said, he's my crossing guard. He's my kid's crossing guard. I can tell by his hands. Oh. But, but you know, you it's hard as a police officer, as an investigator, because are you going to blow these off? I mean, what are you going right. to do? You have to follow all these. And he was in the city. And he sat in cafes wearing sort of a disguise, but not really. But that's how nondescript this man was. Hmm. People didn't notice him. He was in a cafe and there was someone sitting right next to him reading Hmm. an article about him. And so now, what do you think that means? I mean, why would he not just leave? He could have been in Scotland. He could have gone a million different places, Wales, anywhere, where maybe people wouldn't have noticed him. Why would he stay? Yeah, because back then you could just disappear. You didn't really need identification. He could have been gone forever. So he had to want to get notoriety and get caught and stuff, right? And to see the world kind of freak out about his taking of lives repeatedly and getting away with it repeatedly. I mean, like that's a real debacle and a circus that he caused, Mm. which you know he loves. Also, did he, I wonder if he still had the photography studio. Did he get rid of that? No, I think he had, well, you know what? That's a good question. It was rented. And I, Mm. and I assume he had to let it go when he he quit his job. Yeah. 
You know, that was the hardest thing was that there. I don't know what he was thinking when he quit his job. He didn't tell Ethel yeah. because she had just written a postcard to her uh, to her sister and she didn't say anything about quitting a job. And I, I think she would have freaked out on him. So I don't know what the master plan was if he was just giving up, but he absolutely had to have known that he would have been hanged if he got yeah. caught. So here you go. It's three weeks and then, you know, it is all points bulletin. It is the craziest list of tips to come in from psychics. Oh. And every everybody on the planet was writing in. It was like, where's Waldo yeah. trying to find John Christie? And finally, he is spotted early in the morning below a bridge by a young police officer. And he doesn't deny it. He's looking pretty rough. And he's in London. Mm-hmm. And he's taken in and he's arrested. And at this point, they have found all the bodies. They have made identifications. So then we get a little bit into the forensics. So they can tell from the bodies what happened. So everybody was strangled. So the three women who are in the alcove all have carbon monoxide poisoning, which we expect because that's what he did. No carbon monoxide poisoning with ethyl. And of course, we we can't tell from the women Mm -hmm. in the garden because they were skeletonized by the time that the coroner got a hold of them. So he's arrested and he's not really saying anything right now. He has a, a public defender and the crown prosecutor is, you know, assessing the case and and trying to figure it all out. And the, and the prosecutor is really nervous because this seems like someone who's a lunatic. And he is afraid that Christie is going to try to have an insanity defense. Mm. And that was a very real possibility because it could a sane man ever do this? Right. And of course, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Of course, right. sane men do this. So Christie is interrogated about Burl and Geraldine. So here's the thing about Burl and Geraldine. They do not have carbon monoxide poisoning. So that would be a check mark in the Christie did not do it, Evans did do it category, I think, because that was generally his MO. I mean, I think that um, Ethel was a little bit of a spur of the moment. Maybe they got into a fight. She didn't have carbon monoxide, but everybody else had been. And of course, you remember they didn't do a sexual assault test because it was a domestic violence issue. So we don't know anything about that. So they start saying, the Crown Prosecutor says, you killed Burl and Geraldine. And he denies it at first. And then he confesses. And this is the problem with the theory of whether or not John Christie, which everybody on the planet has believed for years, that John Christie was the one who killed Geraldine and Burl because no one believes that there could be a serial killer and another killer living under the same house at the same time. So Christie confesses. That's the big evidence. Is one, it's inexplicable two killers are living in the house and don't know it at the same time. And number two, that this man would confess. He did. He said he did it. I'm wondering, okay, here's my theory. Can I quickly say? Here we go. No, let's do okay, it. He was an alcoholic, right? And so he probably mm-hmm. would get blackout drunk. Maybe he woke up one morning, went out to the washroom, saw the body of his, the bodies of his daughter and wife and was like, I must have done this in a blackout. I am so guilt-ridden because it's so out of character because he actually didn't do it and wouldn't do it that he confesses to it because he's so horrified by it. Yeah. When in actuality, he just put that those pieces together based on, you know. Seeing the bodies? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Karen? That sounds very logical to me. Also, I think that idea, like just from 
learning based on what you've told us, but like the idea of basically a whole generation of men that are suffering basically from PTSD and all the kind of after effects of that. So this, maybe this like the drinking and the violence were a thing that he was constantly struggling with, that the fact that it escalated like that and that both he and his wife were fighting, like the idea that the wife fights back, that that's just, it's like the progression of that kind of domestic violence sickness in the household that it would make sense to him once he saw those bodies, like this is what this has progressed to. And I'm sure there was plenty of blackouts before maybe Mm -hmm. that night. I'm completely in that. I like that theory a lot. Okay. We can put that. We can make a we can make a column for that. <laughs> Uh-oh. No, I just have more stuff to tell you. Okay, great. <laughs> no, I like guessing along the way. No, but I love this theory because I had not thought of that theory before. I really I haven't. So the pathologist, let's talk about Burl. And this is a little bit where you have to speculate. And I know that, you know, you guys are not good at speculating at all. So I'll just leave, I'll just lead you through it. You don't have to say anything during this section. <laughs> We're great at that. We're great at that. <laughs> so I looked at the coroner's reports and as well as the photos, Burl's photos. And whomever killed her hit her so hard that her upper lip touched the top of her nose. <gasps> So I sent that report because I read what the pathologist said about when he thought that happened. And he said, 45 minutes to an hour before death. So I sent that to two modern pathologists, Mm -hmm. both in Chicago, and they agreed. They said, yeah, you can kind of tell by how big it is and like the amount of blood and how it would have clawed, blah, blah, blah. Now, I'm trying to think this through and you guys can tell me what you think. My thought was that John Christie has never hit anybody before. He whacked a woman with a bat, but that's just not part of his thing. Mm-hmm. He's never really hit a woman before. Now, Timothy Evans has. I am thinking that if John Christie does hit Burl Evans in the face an hour before he kills her, how has nobody heard screaming or, you know, I, I just, I don't know. It just seems odd because I could see... Timothy Evans and Burl getting into a physical fight because they did that often and nobody really hearing it or people dismissing it. But I can't see Burl taking a hit from John Christie and not reacting in some way that people could hear or something. It's just out of character for him and kind of for out of her too. So what do you guys think about that? What about the possibility that Timothy Evans does hit his wife in the face Mm-hmm. And she goes down yep. to the neighbors. Is that what you're yep. thinking? I was totally thinking that. Like, she goes, okay, she goes, they get in a normal fight, but he hits her really hard this time. And she's like, fuck this, takes the child, goes downstairs to the very respectable downstairs yeah. neighbors who babysit for her sometimes. And he's a cop, and I'm finally done with this shit. And this is, they go, she actually is going right into the spider's yeah. web. And Timothy gets drunk and blacks out and doesn't really know what happens next, except for that he knows his child and wife are dead, which would be such a horrifying, if that is something he actually witnessed. I mean, he uh, wouldn't you just freak out? Well, you got to imagine that he wakes up the next morning. Let's say he didn't do it. He wakes up the next morning. He's like, where are my wife and kids? He looks everywhere for them, can't find them. Go Like looks in the backyard, looks in the washroom that no one ever uses, like is frantically looking for them. And so would find them because he's looking harder than what he normally would for in the backyard. You guys are smart. I know, right? Really? It's excellent 
It's excellent speculating. And that's a professor saying that, everybody. That's not I just know. another armchair quarterback in true crime. I didn't say I was a good <laughs> professor. I didn't say I was a good professor. Okay, let's continue because there's more, there's more evidence. So then we talk about the confession. So Christy confessed. Now, he never confessed to Geraldine. So he said he went up in his confession. He went up, he saw Burl. Uh, he tried to gas her, but he said he turned on the gas tap and the room filled with gas. And everyone, even the most naive police officers on the force said, there's no way that happened. It wouldn't have killed her the way that he was describing it. Mm-hmm. And he would have died too. And it was just, it was a, clearly kind of a made up story. And he said, I did not kill Geraldine. And he wouldn't, he said, I don't kill kids. So here's where the confession is a problem. Neither of these men is reliable right. in any way. They both confessed and recanted and confessed and recanted. They're both liars. They were both violent. So it's hard to figure out who to believe. What I do know is that Christie confessed to a murder in Windsor when he wasn't even there. And his defense attorney said, we're going to throw the whole kitchen sink at him and see if we can get an insanity defense or the insanity mm-hmm. plea to save his life. So I don't buy the confession at all. And of course, you guys know, I'm, I'm sure at this point that the Innocence Project says a very large majority of people who are wrongfully convicted are convicted because they have a, a right. false confession. And it's not necessarily because the police have done anything to get that out of them. They're scared. And innocent people do hire attorneys. Yes. They just do. Don't let anybody yeah. tell you otherwise. They hire attorneys. So, you know, the confession thing for me is meaningless because I just don't believe it. Burl doesn't show signs of any kind of a sexual assault. The mm-hmm. other women did. So there's that. What's weird about it is, is that I can see Christy killing a woman in his building, even though that's not something he had done. It's really hard to think that he's going to be able to drag her down four flights of stairs hmm. only because... They were very narrow, and he was really, really wimpy. I mean, he really could barely make do just getting out the front door and the back door. And he was able to get women, obviously, in the backyard. But also remember that those two women were buried in the backyard 10 years earlier when he was in better health, which is, I think, another reason why he didn't throw someone over his shoulder and go take them somewhere else. I think he really didn't have much of a choice. So... I think if he were confronted with Geraldine crying, I'm not sure Christie's first instinct would be to kill her. But regardless, the Crown prosecutor went forward with murder charges against, I think, three of the women. Now, of course, I can't remember. And Christie becomes the darling of the media, which is disgusting. Everybody's vying for his exclusive. And there's something called checkbook journalism. The newspapers in London would essentially bid on a defendant and they would then pay for the exclusive rights. They would pay for their defense completely and and pay for the exclusive rights to their story. So Christie did that. He had a full confession with the reporter. And in prison, the egotism was incredible. He had pictures of himself. Oh, God. Like (laughs) in his cell, which is just not who I would choose to look at, I guess. But Oh, what a creep. So he had pictures of himself. All these women were lined up outside in the courtroom and also, you know, around the jail. And and he told one of the jailers there, he pointed at his crotch and he said, they're here because of this. Oh, hard pass. No, thank you. 
Honey, no, uh, honey. So he, you know, he was finally getting the attention yeah. that he thought he deserved, which I think, I mean, is that surprising no. to either of you? No. Probably not. And I think it, yeah, lines up perfectly with not leaving, with basically just right. kind of being in the in the mix here and in feeling the renown and the fame of yeah. evil doing. And he was kind of right in that way where it's like, and then once you're known then you're the name on everyone's lips. People like that don't know the difference between positive attention and negative attention and they don't right. care. So it's just like, it's attention. Yeah. It's all that matters. Like feed the beast. Yeah, it's pretty gross. And so he was getting all of this attention. He is, of course, quickly convicted. He has not gotten the insanity plea at all. Everybody thinks he's sane. His lawyer is trying to argue otherwise and is having him confess to more and more people. But even Christie draws a line. And I, I've i talked to forensic psychologists who I say, oh, these serial killers have no morals. And, and they say, they do. They're just not our morals. They have their own code of honor. Yeah. That's what I was going to say about him not killing Geraldine. It's like, well, of course he'd kill Geraldine. He's a murderer. But it's like, because we want to just think of these devils and we'd be able to spot them. But it's like, yeah, they have rules to their you know, awfulness. Yeah. And it's so surprising. And I think his, he has a real problem with women. He doesn't right. have a problem with children. That's a different category right. kind of. And he is, his problem with, is with grown, sexually mature, independent thinking women and women mm. who like men maybe, or women who have a good time in life. It's a whole different axe to grind mm -hmm. that he has. So it is that kind of thing where like, yeah, I'm bad, but I don't touch children, which is a completely different level right. of hell in his mind. Right. And that would have really gotten him pretty close to the insanity mm -hmm. defense. And he just said, I'm not going to do that. He also liked animals. Yeah. Right. You know, I don't really buy into the whole checklist of what serial killers do. He loved animals and he loved his old, old decrepit dog so much that he actually put him down before he went on the run. <laughs> he spent money to put the dog down, which was for him the, mo the most humane thing to do rather than let this dog fend for itself on the streets. So yeah, yeah. different set of rules. He's convicted, he's sentenced to death, which is, you know, no big surprise. And when he finally goes to the gallows, he faces the man who most people have faced, which is an executioner by the last name of Pierpont. Mm. And Christy, the last thing that happens, I'm smiling even though I'm not supposed to be smiling at this, but the last thing that happens is before Pierpont pulls the lever, Christy says that, uh, he says, my nose itches. And Pierpont says, it won't bother you for long. And then he <laughs> flips it. Shit. Yes. Wow. That's like straight out of a movie. <laughs> that might be only funny to me. But <laughs> I just oh think. my God. It's dark, but it's God. like, yeah. Hey, Karen, you know that feeling when you're stressed out and your heart starts to pound and your mind is racing? I do. I know it well. Well, while there's no cure for stress, therapy can help shape your response to it. And since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, there's no better time to try Talkspace. When you sign up for Talkspace, you'll receive a personalized match with a therapist or psychologist, typically within 48 hours. Forbes rates Talkspace as the number one online therapy platform, plus their licensed professionals are in network with almost all major insurance companies. Once you meet your therapy goals, or if you want to cancel for any reason, Talkspace will provide you with a prorated refund for unused time. 
I feel like these days people understand the importance of therapy, but the difficult part is just taking that first step. It took me months to make my first therapy appointment. I was so scared. I had a lot of ideas in my head about it. And that's why I think Talkspace is such a good idea because making it so approachable will just get you there sooner. Then you can actually get in there, figure out what you need, talk to an actual professional and be on your way to solving some stuff that you might want to solve. To celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering our listeners $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80. Go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and use promo code SPACE80. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and enter promo code SPACE80 and get $80 off your first month and show your support for our show. That's Talkspace.com slash MFM. Enter promo code SPACE80. Goodbye. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. So this causes all hell to break loose in Parliament because of Timothy Evans, because, oh my gosh, did we convict the wrong man and hang the wrong man? Because no one could believe two killers were living in the same house at the same time. They do a quick little retry and still find him guilty. Now, he was found guilty of killing his wife only, Timothy Evans, not Geraldine. They just they had to choose one, right. so they picked Burl. I think because they thought for some reason it was going to be easier to prove. So they still find him guilty. And about 12 years passes when there is another reexamination of the case by a guy named Judge Daniel Braben. And this is called the Braben Report, which is pretty interesting if you're into super old crime depositions and such. So he retries the whole thing. And he comes up with, to me, the most bizarre theory. And I'm just going to say it, and you guys can just tell me what you think. He thinks that Timothy and Christy were working together. No. no. (laughs) And that Timothy killed his wife and Christy killed the little girl. Why? Oh, like a strangers on the train exchange of you kill my relative and I kill your relative? I think that he believed that something happened between Tim and Burl and he killed her and Christy was trying to be helpful because the men were sort of friendly. And he knew that the little girl was going to cry and cry without her mom because she was still breastfeeding. And, you know, and, and also Burl was pregnant at the time. And so Christy was trying to be helpful and killed Geraldine, which makes zero sense. Whoever killed one killed the other. No. I think it's way, I don't believe this theory, but I think it's more likely that there were two murderers in a building than it is that they were working together. Right. I do still think Christy killed little Geraldine, not because he wanted to kill kids and because he was into that, but because that was the like unnecessary thing to do after he yeah. killed her mother. Yeah. It's interesting to hear so many different points of view because you guys have brought up a couple of things I hadn't thought of about him being Ooh. a professor. How 
my God. A plus for us? Our dro- the dropouts get oh an A plus? God. Again, maybe not a good professor, <laughs> but yes, you could say that. <laughs> it only took us six years to get a theory right-ish, maybe. <laughs> now, now, let me tell you what happens when Braben makes this decision. Timothy Evans is exonerated. He was exonerated for killing his daughter, but not his wife. So it's all very confusing. This has been gone over and gone over about a million times in the UK. Timothy Evans's family has been given money by the UK government because of a wrongful conviction. And, you know, they have maintained his innocence. I'm not sure if his sisters are still alive, but probably about 10 years ago, they were, and there was a, a big push for, for them to fully investigate this. I don't know how they would be able to do that 70 years later. But his half-sister was given compensation because of the posthumous pardon. Wow. Lots of books and movies. Timothy Roth, who I love so much, play, plays Christie in the latest kind of BBC iteration of it. So I will tell you, I feel fairly certain that Tim Evans killed his wife and child. Mm. That's how I feel. Okay. And I was pretty much the only one, I think, until I read Burl Evans's younger brother, who was 13, when she and Tim were married. And he wrote a book, and he said in the book that he would go and visit when he was 13, and that Timothy was so violent with Burl that he would have to put his hands over Geraldine's ears just to cover it up. And this is like a month before she was killed. He said that Timothy was so incredibly violent and just a horrible person. He said, there is nobody in my family who believes John Christie was the one who killed her. He had no motive. And he said, and I think he was so drunk and so mad that he strangled Geraldine. There's a church right around the corner, you guys. If it were Christy, I think he would have taken her and just left right. her at the church. I mean, there's no motivation for Christy to kill this little girl. Yeah. I understand Burl, but Burl's brother just said, Timothy Evans was a terrible person and we had been afraid that this was going to happen and it happened, mm. you know, and it was not John Christie. So... It's a big mystery. It's a mystery. I mean, we don't, we, I don't, I don't know. I believe it too with the, I changed my mind. Well, cause that's yeah. inside information, right? That's a yeah. person who right. has to sit there at the table where Evan's family is like, he could never, but then there's the witness from Beryl's side of the family. That's like, this guy was a monster and an alcoholic where like, I believe it in a second. Yeah. I think that kind of witness is so credible because you're in the day-to-day. So if this guy was a true monster in the Mm day-to-day, then, you know, if one thing happens or one thing goes off, like we've seen that lots of times, the the family annihilators that are like, I'm depressed. This is always hard. Here's the solution. Let's pack this in. Yeah. And it's also interesting to be like, well, there's not usually two killers in one place, but it's like, okay, one person was an outlier and that was a serial killer, but a, a abusive violent, alcoholic man abusing his family is not rare. Post-war, post-war, yeah. That's not, unfortunately, still not rare. What's also really weird is there was three killers because then there's the fog happening at the same time. Like having, dun, dun, dun. having read your book, no joke though, like that I thought your book was about the fog. So I was like, wow, this is fascinating. I can't believe it. And then when it goes into this, it's just like, oh, oh. Like, how did anybody deal with anything? Like, it was, the fog was bad enough. So I'm sure, like, reality was kind of defying reality for people at the time. So it's just like, 
you know, it's three steps away. It's into the fantastic, but so is the air killing you and not being able to see one foot in front of you when you're walking down the street during the day. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, it's a systemic issue that we have a problem with now, air pollution, dealing with. How do we even figure this out now? I can't imagine. I <laughs> always say in these interviews that in the 50s, the minister of health had just declared that cigarettes were connected to, you know, cancer and, and addiction. And he's sitting there chain smoking <laughs> through the whole news conference. So that is the, it, 85% of the city oh smoked. Yeah. In 85%. Yeah. I mean, they were like little kids yes, smoking. for real. I mean, so, so, you know, I think the bottom line with this case is, of course, we're never going to know. And that's maddening to me. I am not a big unsolved case fan. I really like a tidy conclusion. No one ever wants to think that a mother or a father could kill their child. And that's what I think it made it really hard was he did seem like a good father, but you just, you never know. And after reading her brother's book, I just thought, man, this is, I mean, when I I read he was violent, that was one thing. But when there's a 13-year-old kid sitting there frightened for his sister and then she ends up dead... Yeah, it just seems, and, and I people just couldn't believe it. No, and I totally understand that. I, it's mm-hmm. self protection, yeah. I think, in a way, to think that this is not going to happen in our society. It must be the serial killer. But as you said, you know, uh, it's, this is not Bundy and Gacy living together no. in a condo. No. This is this is a serial killer who is living in a building just like. You know, with a, with a, someone who is an abuser, just like probably right. two buildings down, there was somebody who was abusing his wife. It kind of does point to that because when you were just saying the thing about air pollution and it's a systemic issue, it's like, as is domestic violence. Right. Like that that right. kind of thing where if there are no services, if there's no one to call, if there's nowhere to go, then you have to stay in that apartment and and keep on going to work, coming home, people drinking, people fighting. Like the pressure just keeps building and it happens a lot. And I think because families learn to keep secrets, it's actually probably much more common than most people know or think. So that idea that, yes, what was happening in this house, how could it be? And it's like, if people got real about the prevalence of domestic violence and substance abuse and how those things are tied together and how many people actually live with it, it wouldn't be as surprising maybe. Well, I think, and also this really does come down to somebody like John Christie who picked victims who were not represented well. Now, there were some of the women, the part-time sex workers he was targeting, had friends who were looking for them, but the police didn't give a shit. I mean, you know that. It's the same story. They did not care. So uh, they were dealing with gambling and, oh man, and, and Timothy Evans was a gambler too. I mean, there was just, there was a lot of uh, check marks for him that I, I think got suppressed a little mm-hmm. bit at trial because they were really trying to make him come off a little bit like a dullard, a little bit like someone who was naive, who had been manipulated by Christie into thinking something. Mm-hmm. And and so it was. it's an enduring mystery that will always be talked about, I'm sure. I mean, it was one of the worst things to happen, certainly in that area. And 10 Rillington Place, of course, is no longer there. The whole street's what? no longer there. They bulldozed the entire thing. It's called Ruston Close now. Don't everybody go there, please. <laughs> I'm sure those people need their privacy. But it's it's a it's they had to mow down that whole yeah, area. Yeah. There was a a movie that was made in the 70s that was really well known about Rillington Place. 
And after that movie, it was shot there. And after that movie, mm. they, that was it. They just, there was too much publicity. Yeah. So there's so much that comes up into this, you know, racism from the Christie's and poverty in that area, post-war poverty, women who have lost loved ones in the war and now have to do things that they didn't particularly want to do in order to raise mm-hmm. their children, who then become victims. And, you know, people who are fighting for them to be found and the police don't pay attention. And then the police are right. undermanned to begin yeah. with. And there they are walking past thigh bones. <sighs> it's just... It's a nightmare. So there's so much to me to learn from this story. And it is such a sad story to see it in different forms repeated over and over again. The only thing I can hope is that we just continue to pick up lessons here and there from these kinds of stories. For sure. So if you haven't read Death in the Air, The True Story of a Serial Killer, The Great London Smog, and The Strangling of a City by Kate Winkler Dawson, you simply must... And we should plug the new season of Tenfold More Wicked, which is coming up very quickly. Do you want to talk about that for one second, Kate? Sure. So this will be season six. I just can't even believe it. It's like having a six-year-old. <laughs> so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I just get gray hairs. With every season, I get more and more gray hairs. <laughs> so season six of Tenfold More Wicked is very, very close to my heart. They all are, but this this one especially, it's about a young woman who is found dead in Aransas Pass, Texas, which is next to a small town where I go to visit a lot with my family, Port Aransas. This is a story about a town during Prohibition, a very small town, about a wealthy family, and we're trying to figure out if someone got away with murder and what happened to this young woman who her family believed was perfect. And it was so much pressure for her that just something was bound to happen. And and then it did. Wow. Amazing. And that comes out on the 25th of April. So make sure you rate, review, subscribe, all of those things. Yes. Kate, thank you so much for doing this with us. You are an amazing storyteller. That was just a delight to listen to you. Thank you. So I'll see you guys in like a couple weeks, maybe. (laughs) Start all over again. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Thank you, Kate. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. That was awesome. Bye. Bye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producers are Hannah Kyle Crichton and Natalie Wren. Our producer is Alejandra Keck. This episode was engineered and mixed by Andrew Epen. Email your hometowns and fucking hoorays to myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and on Twitter at myfavemurder. Listen, follow, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Goodbye. Goodbye. Follow My Favorite Murder on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase My Favorite Murder merch.